0: Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of Muslims Doing Things, a podcast about exceptional Muslims and their career journeys. Today we are interviewing, and by we I mean I, I don't know why I always say we, I'm interviewing Sundas Abdelhadi. She's an artist and she's an author and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi Sundas. Hi Layla. Hello, Shlonich. Zaina, and Shlonich. Well, <laughs> alhamdulillah, Zaina, and the first Iraqi female guest. So I'm very excited to introduce today's guest to you all. This is Sundas Abdul Abdelhadi, who is my first Iraqi female. We had Salam, who's Iraqi, as the last episode. And I'm thrilled to introduce you to Sunnis, and let me tell you why. Well, actually, Sundas, why don't you introduce
1: yourself? right away huh just throw me in the deep end
0: here. right into it
1: <laughs> you know it's always very hard to introduce yourself but i guess um i can boil it down to a few core things i'm an artist and a writer I'm originally Iraqi, and I'm based here in uh, Geojaque, Montreal. Wonderful.
0: You're an artist. You actually come from, you're generationally an artist. I believe a second generation artist, which is
1: incredible.
0: Is that correct?
1: Yes, you're right. My, uh, my mother is an artist and my father is an architect.
0: So m- most people don't know this. I studied architecture twice. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> so before I went to technology, I really, really thought I was going to be an architect. I love architecture. Um, but now I'm, I mostly love architects. Like I'm convinced that anybody who can make it through that degree standing and still have a preserved ego is an incredible person and can solve any problem. Like I, I stand by that theory.
1: I, I completely agree. It uses a part of your brain that has, I think the perfect balance between the left and the right hemispheres. And I see my dad and how he analyzes the world and how he how his imagination works and it's truly fascinating to see how he's able to be both science and art at the same time.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. So I already love Ramu. So that's great. And But let, let's go into it. Where were you born, Zindas?
1: I was born in Abu Dhabi. As I was a Gulf baby. My parents uh, left Iraq in 1977. So actually, as much as I feel Iraqi through and through in my soul and in my core, I actually never lived there. I wasn't born there. Yeah, so my parents uh, did the the first Gulf Boom in the seventies. I moved to Abu Dhabi in Emirates when it was still practically a desert, and that's where I was born in the Corniche Hospital.
0: (laughs) You know, it's incredible because I'm also so my parents are Iraqi. I consider myself Iraqi, but I was born in America. So the day I was born, I had an American passport or the rights to it, and kind of had very much a dual existence, having been born in the desert in, in. you know, the Gulf where you absolutely could not be of that citizenship and you were so close to home, I can understand why the identity would be maybe, maybe ring even a little bit differently. Because oh, it, yeah. it was it was your it was your passport, it was your home. You couldn't get that Emirati citizenship, right? Uh,
1: yeah, you're very right. I mean, I think this is a, a definitely a very, very complex conversation when you're like talking about what identity means for the, you know, the Arab expat born in the Gulf. Especially for those of us who never had the privilege of returning back to like our homelands, quote unquote, you know, Iraqis, Palestinians, you know, for a long time, I felt very unconnected or disconnected from the fact that my birthplace said Abu Dhabi on my passport. And I'm like, man, you know, of all of all things that I felt didn't represent who I am and my identity, it was that tiny detail on my passport. <laughs> I felt, you know, it should should say Baghdad. It should say Baghdad because throughout my childhood, my mom and dad always made sure to take us back to Baghdad. We would go at least once a year through the sanctions even. We were going to Baghdad regularly because that was home. And they made sure that we knew that on a very intimate level, that this place, we may be living here as in Abu Dhabi, but we don't belong here. And Mm. our home or
0: our homeland is Iraq. You know, it's fascinating that you say that. We we actually had the same experience, which... My whole life has been something very unique to the way that my mother and my father raised us. Is we used to go back through the sanctions and everything every year, maybe every two years, up until the early 2000s, and since 2000, I've maybe gone back only three times or so. But th- that was unique, and even our, our Iraqi American friends thought it was unique and thought my mother was quite brave for doing it. And it was challenging, but we would go spend six eight weeks. You know, the electricity would be cut off. We, we would love <laughs> it. We walked to the Zantakine and get candy and bread, and it was really an integral part of my childhood, but the Iraqi American identity is a little bit of a lonely one. Mm. I think that many of, not all, but it's not uncommon for people who immigrated when my parents did, half of the people I know either assimilated quickly The other half maybe didn't get the opportunity that we did to go back as frequently.
1: The door stayed open. Yeah. Let's just say, like, put it that way. The door stayed open. There was still, like, a channel between you and and your roots that, that you were kind of with one foot in and one foot out. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely no. did.
0: It, it and even now, I'm teaching my daughter Arabic, and like you know, she speaks pretty good Arabic. But it, it still is something that's important. though, over the years, admittedly, as I've visited less, it's, it's changed. The relationship with identity has changed, and of course, in America too, politics has become more amenable to Muslims. Whereas when I was younger, it just wasn't right? Mm-hmm. So now the American identity is taken present. It's really a fascinating journey when I kind of look back.
1: But I, that, I, I completely deep. relate. I mean, I relate, but I also see that the American experience is very different. But the, the way that your parents raised you is, is very similar to mine. Um, we ended up moving or immigrating to Canada when I was 11. Hmm. So that was a huge shift for me. And, and that was the first time I really, really started feeling this sense of, you know, kind of deeper belonging to Iraq, because I felt how distant it became. It wasn't mm. as accessible anymore, and uh, like similar, to, actually very similar to you. After the two thousands, uh, my v- visits became less frequent, and the and each one since then are was really punctuated by either pain or grief or trauma. Once I started visiting Iraq as an adult, that it took on a whole other layer of, like you said, identity and belonging and what that means to me as I evolve and change and, you know, and Iraq evolves and changes.
0: And you know, what's what's fascinating, and I can't wait to go through the journey, but your first word in your instagram bio is iraqi right and i think i think the identity also has with the of course very complicated relationship has influenced much of your work and and as i noted it's it's played a big role in my life so i'm curious to know as you immigrated to canada what was the journey between you landing in canada and you saying i'm professionally going to be an artist like th- this is it
1: mm. Wow. Well, you know, I, I credit my parents because I come from a family of artists. And it's not just me, by the way. My sister is an artist too. She's a photographer. Um, my husband's an artist and musician. My sister-in-law is a filmmaker. My cousin is a music producer. So all of these people in my family and in my life have taken to the arts in different ways, in different mediums and and different capacities. And it was never Abe you know for us going into the arts was actually something that was uh not I wouldn't say encouraged because let's say if one of us was like hey you know actually I want to be an engineer I'm sure they would have been like oh a kid go for it but we all migrated like we all migrated towards the arts it was really interesting and so in my family, I had a very strong support system. And among my generation of family, my peers and my cousins and my sister, we had a community in and of itself as well, where we were exploring you know, our, our various mediums or medias and having that space with and for each other, where, which was in stark contrast to my experience in university And, you know, trying to get into the art scene in Canada and, and, you know, internationally, where I did not feel that my work had a place. People weren't able to engage with my art and with my ideas the same way that I was having within my own family.
0: Yeah. And because, well, I think what you're getting at is art. So so I'll think of architecture school and my relationship with architecture school. It's not like a math paper where you finish it and the answer is right or wrong. There's a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of back and forth. And right now I work in product design and it's quite similar. Nothing is done at the first shot. There's a lot of dialogue, a lot of critique, and a lot of back and forth. Mm. And and that dialogue, typically, it happens best when you are interacting, at least in, in the making of before the completion, when you're interacting with people whose core values you, you agree with, they're, whether they're aesthetic principles or, you know, whatever values or principles you're like, yeah, like, they're going to tell me this thing, or they're going to say that it 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 makes this, you know, has had this effect, and I trust it, right? Because it's, it's a subjective craft that you're building.
1: Well, you know, so the thing is, it's uh, subjective, but also there's this, there's a problem of representation. And there's a severe problem of representation and lack of representation of our Identities, our peoples, you know, our perspectives, our narratives, and I'm talking, you know, maybe specifically as Iraqis, uh, particularly at a time when there was a war mm. <laughs> waging. You know what I mean? Like America was on, uh, like creating creating narratives about the Iraqi experience mm-hmm. and the Iraqi identity every night on the evening news. Mm-hmm. You know, and and la like until now, and until now, you look around and you see, like for example, the the recent video game Six Days in Fallujah, and and Hela, my my sister in law and Yasin are behind the campaign. Actually, they're the ones who put it together, and so there's this idea that the representation of our people has always been something that did not represent me, my experience, mm-hmm. my family, and my uh, um, experience with my people and the diversity of our uh, experience as Iraqis mm-hmm. and then you know you go even deeper and it becomes you know you look at the problem with Arab representation as a whole the representation of Muslims as a whole and of course who better to have articulated all of these things than you know Edward Saeed who for me reading his work in university i was like aha okay so this mm-hmm. is what i'm experiencing mm-hmm. this is the the hole i've been kind of forced to to hide in or the corner that i've been told to go to it's 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 a very particular experience growing up iraqi arab or muslim in north america at a time when the representation of our people was at such An extreme place,
0: and you know, for the listeners who don't know of Edward Said's work, which is really was really groundbreaking. he, He he coined this term Orientalism, which is a way that exaggerates and distorts the differences of Arab people and Eastern people compared to those in Europe and the U.S., which makes Arab culture look exotic or backwards or uncivilized and often dangerous, as as we saw in the media in the 90s, you know, Not Without My Daughter, which I reference a lot. So it's really disastrous. It's a really disastrous narrative that's had so many repercussions. But to kind of go back to the Iraq part. When when I did my first my first degree in architecture, I actually wrote a thesis, which I'm going to do a really quick overview for the listeners who probably don't know this, though, Sundas, you might because not a lot of people know about how rich and important the architectural and art history of Iraq is. I'm sure you know it, Sundas, but I'm, those, I'm obsessed right? with it. <laughs> it's incredible it's, it's because incredible so Iraq became very rich in the 30s, right? After a sec go, the British put a government in place, they had a ton of oil and as time passed, these incredible Western architects were pulled in by Iraq to make Iraq look powerful with the West because architecture is what does that, right? Walter Gropius, Le Corbusier, like people that were really just such revered folks in the world of architecture. So they start building this, this nation based on their styles. And then, of course, the rise of Pan-Arabism follows. And you're probably laughing at how high level this is and how vague this is. But what that meant was that there are all these Arab artists who said, hey, we love your style, but we have our own. And then from there, this Iraqi art scene emerged. And then, of course, with all the war and the strife, maybe that history continued, but in less of a way that it might have without the multiple wars from, you know, the 80s onward. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily a fair representation or if you'd like to add more color, but I think it's especially intriguing to hear you talk about the world of Iraqi art and it not representing you. And then also me seeing on Instagram now, lots of Iraqi artists who are starting to almost continue this narrative with, um, a a local, but also a global, almost Iraqi vernacular.
1: You know, I feel like what you're, what one way to kind of take what you said and also translate it to a word that's being used a lot these days. And that's been on, you know, collective consciousness level, is the concept or idea of decolonization. And I feel like with colonialism, with Orientalism, you can't look at the relationship between the East and the West without looking at colonization. And this idea of a power dynamic between the East and the West and the colonizer and the, um, the, the colonized and all of these really, really rich... Um, cultural theorists who have written about these things, even you know I'm talking not just Edward Said, but Franz Fanon and uh, other wonderful authors of color. I call them deeply rooted. this is my this is my contribution to, to decolonizing these kinds of words and ideas. So to to kind of break it down, someone like Jawad Salim, for example, who is Iraq's darling of a modern artist. He was the founder of the Baghdad Modern Baghdad Group for Modern Art or the Baghdad Modern Art Group in the uh, 50s. And he is the artist behind the iconic Nasb al-Hurriya, the, the bas-relief that is in downtown Baghdad in Tahrir Square. Pretty much, like if you think about Iraq and you think about you know uh, the city core, you think about that that image, image, you know, and and like so many pictures of it, it. I'm obsessed with it. But what Juwad Salim did, even though he studied in the West, um, he moved, but when he came back to Iraq, he started incorporating ancient Sumerian and Babylonian iconography into his work, and this was at a time when iraq had just gained independence from the british colonization and so what what the the baghdad modern art group and artists like Jawad salim and others like him and the the iraqi architects and the creatives of this part of the, the world were were doing were essentially um decolonizing by drawing attention to their rich heritage drawing attention to the fact that actually you know what iraq is the cradle of civilization mm. we come from a rich rich history that is so deep that there is a lot that we still don't know about it you know and um, and i've always found that so so fascinating I've, and honestly i'm like I feel like I can work about Iraq forever as an artist, as a writer. I, I, it's just for me a well. It's a treasure chest. It, it's never ending. The the level of inspiration that I get from just looking into my own identity and roots, for um, reflection, inspiration, and and you know all of it. Uh, just as a as an anecdote, when I was in university, the an art school, the Iraq war was raging. And uh was between the years 2001 and 2004. So September 11th and the war in Iraq and the invasion happened when I was a university student in Montreal. And um, of course, all of my art, all of my projects had to do with Iraq at all i mean it i couldn't not it was one of those things and to bring back jawad salim one of the statements of the baghdad modern art group is that a do du- an artist has the duty to interpret and depict um a, a social, the, the social the uh, social conditions of the country so i'm like you know what it's not it's not a coincidence that i'm iraqi and i'm living this right now i need to be doing something and and the best way for me to do it is through my art and through my writing. And uh, every time I would present one of my projects, teachers would be like, okay, well, you know, um, maybe it's time you move away from the subject now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or like, you know, the students would just stare blankly at me and be like, oh, uh, well, um, um, how do you feel about the war in Iraq? <laughs> and I'm like, guys, this is, you are not getting it. This is you. It is flying right past your heads. Yeah. Um, but see those, those were the experiences that ended up defining me and what I felt like my purpose was. And yeah. uh, as an artist and as a writer, I felt like I really had to start learning how to articulate myself well so that I could be able to educate people and, and, talk about these things in a way where I could engage even the ones that felt that they could not engage because they, you know, it's too complicated or too um, distant for them to, you know? Mm
0: -hmm. I know, I actually know all too well when I was in architecture school, my thesis, I, people made like, you know, green buildings for education. And my thesis project, which is a huge project, it takes like a year to develop it, was the Baghdad War Archive. It was a museum that I developed that the concept was heavily based off of like shrapnel, but also like people kind of holding up the legacy despite the built environment being destroyed. So I I deeply know this. Um, I I love that project. I, I mean, it's just one of those projects that will always sit so deeply in my heart. And if I stayed in architecture, I have no doubts that I would have probably made sure I pursued it. Um, so yes, I understand, and I'm I'm curious about that experience in call in art school. So you go to art school, and starting art school, where you like, I know what I want to do. I probably have to go to college, so I'm just gonna get a degree, or where you like, I want to learn more about this. I want to learn the business side of art. What was your motive, and how did your career start from there?
1: I mean, I always with education. I've always education and work and career. Uh, the way that I've always approached it is that. I'm going to do the thing I'm going to do anyway. So if I'm already making art and I'm already, you know, doing expressing myself in this way, I might as well get a degree while I'm doing it, you know? <laughs> and it was, off me. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I was like, "Well, to ضايع," you know? Raya, you know? <laughs> it's all about being, uh, what's the word? Um you know uh, efficient it's about efficiency it's like, you know? on, <laughs> <laughs> and then I ended up doing that actually as I continued my my you know work and in academia and as an artist I said I'm doing this stuff anyway I'm working on these projects this is what's inspiring me I might as well you know try to um get some funding for it, you know. <laughs> and so I'd apply for a grant. And then alhamdulillah, you know, I got I got funding for a few of my projects. And then um, you know, as time evolved that's kind of the direction that my career started to go in. So even with Shams and Take Care of Yourself, the books. Which is your book. Yes. Yes. So last year in 2020, I put out two books, which was insane. I would not recommend it to anybody, especially during a pandemic with with two small children. I uh, did put out the works that I have been working on for the past decades or so. So Shams, I had been working on for almost 10 years, and it's an illustrated children's book um, about a little girl made of glass. And Take Care of Yourself is a nonfiction book that is uh, about care, culture, and community. And those two books are really, they're related, they're linked, and they kind of... <laughs> involve each other in many different ways and one of them led to the other. And and through both of these books I got my master's degree. And another very Iraqi thing to do. <laughs> oh, you just had a newborn baby? yalla get your master's degree. <laughs> oh man. It was insane. Um yeah, I, I I got my master's degree. And then I figured a way to incorporate um, the work that I was doing before going back to school, into my thesis, which eventually became an exhibition, um, including 27 artists of deeply rooted communities. And then after I graduated, I turned that project or my thesis project into the book, Take Care of Yourself. Hmm. And so um, when did you graduate? I graduated in 2017. In
0: 2017. Yeah. And after you graduated... Is When you start thinking about arts, I'd imagine you're like, okay, well, I need to kind of create a template for how I'm going to make this work. Either you figure out how to sell art, you make books, you figure out like grants. I guess what are the paths and how did you decide your path for making art into something into a a business like there has to be a business element of it right for just practical purposes
1: Mm, uh, business that's a word i uh, really don't uh, (laughs) i don't relate to at all i am such a bad businesswoman Leila. it's terrible
0: it's like my favorite uh, word on earth
1: (laughs) (laughs) i'm like i'm I'm like allergic to that word i'm a very bad businesswoman i give away my books for free all the time (laughs) i i um I do work for free all the time. I just, you know, it's it's one of those things that I would say, if of course, and it is a business now. I mean, we have we are the medium, which Yasin and I, my husband and I, started alongside uh, other members of my family, uh, actually. So we're a collective. We're a collective of artists and so cool and creatives, and. Um, so there is that business side and of course there is this idea of of you know funding and making ourselves sus- self sustainable to the point where we can do what we love without having to do something else to sustain that practice you know mm-hmm. and alhamdulillah you know it's been about a decade now that we've been able to live this life and it feels like a dream uh, that that we were able to create you know, a sustainable life as artists. But I have to give a lot of credit to Canada because they—they're the grant system here makes it very possible for you to live as mm. an artist. And that's something that's very rare in many other parts of the world. Um, but in terms of our business strategy and our business growth and our collaborations, they've always been organic. And, um, and that's worked out. Very well for us, up until now, and I hope that it can continue to, because um, it really it's it's the work that comes from the heart and and we work with you know intention and intentionality. Um, and that's something that I, f- I I feel like without it, I don't think it would have given us back so much. It's mm. the you know the gift that keeps on giving.
0: I, first of all, am blown away that Canada has created an infrastructure of possibility because when I think about you're going to this is the most American thing I'm going to say when I think about grants for the arts, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, you know, Coca-Cola, like obviously a company would give you a grant. It didn't even I mean, I know they're obviously nonprofits, but it didn't even occur to me that the government would support the arts in that way and ensure the sustainability of the arts in that way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, and, you know, we've taken a lot of cuts also over the years where certain, you know, politicians and parties want to cut funding to the arts, but uh, it's managed to be, remain one of the more consistent things about Canadian uh, culture and society. This idea of like um, support for the arts and that sector.
0: Hmm, that, that's really cool. And yeah, I'm, I'm on the wearethemedium.com website, which I'll put in the show notes. And I see your husband, Yasin, who folks know as Narsi. There's a cartoonist, Khalid al your sister, who's a photographer, Tamara Abdelhadi. It's just really cool. Like the idea is so cool that you'd put a collective together. And how do you guys, again, very business question, but I have to ask. How do you measure success? Is it that everybody has sustainable work? Is that you all wake up feeling good? How do you all say we are the medium is working?
1: Um, so we're all independent. And I think that's very important to mention um, in the sense that we're independent. We don't represent anybody but ourselves and nobody represents us. We represent ourselves. And the the idea when you're independent can be very empowering as much Mm -hmm. as it is, it can be uh, daunting and isolating at first to think like, Oh, I'm I'm just going to like wade through the waters uh, without support, uh, you know, or like a support system or a net, but that's what we are. The medium is we are in the sense, in that sense, a support, we're a community. And so Mm -hmm. we support each other in this sense. And, um, and everybody's work uh, doesn't necessarily come with an agenda. Because of that, you know, being independent, you don't have a boss to answer back to. You don't have quotas to fill. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have anybody to say, like, oh, well, you know, none, you know. The, 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 this thing is trending so we need to jump on that and yeah. you know it's like no man none of that <laughs> we need merch <laughs> i mean the merch we do cuz we're passionate about merch you know yeah. and yeah, and the but merch is
0: sales necessarily i'm i'm all for merch don't get me wrong yeah. but the point is it's more passion driven
1: it's totally passion driven and uh, one of the first things that we did when uh, we started we are the medium and we were actually a much larger collective before and we kind of uh, slowly narrowed it down because we felt like it was starting to become unsustainable in that sense um, to um, w- with a larger group of people, so we narrowed it down to the people that we knew that we you know are a part of our daily they're a part of our daily lives and and we're uh, we're really like a a team in that sense mm-hmm. um. And we share the same values. I feel like that's something very, very important. Values, mm-hmm. uh, not just as artists and as uh, cultural producers, but also as people. You know, like uh, kindness, uh, intention, uh, goodness, faith, all you know, spirituality, um, critical thinking. All of these things uh, have informed our work in many, mm-hmm. many different ways. You know. So yeah, uh, sorry, you were saying something and I got uh, I went into a tangent. I forgot.
0: Oh, no, I, I, I love this website. I'm definitely going to link it into the show notes. And I'm like looking at the artists and there's just such a breadth. There's also something which is important, I think, within the world of the arts and even within being independent. And I hear this a lot more in influencer world. I certainly, I don't consider myself an influencer professionally, but um, for folks who do, and for folks who kind of take brand deals, typically there's a bit of subjectivity. And unless they're comfortable asking their friends, "Hey, what did they pay you? Hey, they wanted to do that campaign for free," um, there's a, there's often a leg up when people are open about what the work entails, if people do want to collaborate with them. And I think that often there are some communities that are easier to take advantage of others. I, I, I'd i imagine there's some parallel in the world of the arts, or at least kind of letting each other know about various opportunities or kind of plugging each other when when possible. But the sense of community
1: can only enrich the work within your collective. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's definitely what what with take care of yourself. Collaboration was a huge part of it, because I ended up you know, curating an exhibition with 27 artists. And 20 of those artists ended up in the book. And so this idea of collaboration, expanding your community, going past your network, creating connections uh, with communities that are also, you know, not your own community. So with Take Care of Yourself, I worked with extremely diverse communities. I expanded, um, you know, past the Arab and Iraqi community, and worked with uh, artists who I know have had similar experiences of struggle and colonization. So I'm talking about indigenous artists and black artists and, you know, the people from the communities that I call deeply rooted, you know, indigenous, global, worldwide indigenous communities who have, who understand struggle on a really deep, intimate level. And have managed to create communities of care uh, and um, experiences of empowerment and healing through their various struggles that we all learn from. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I was attracted to that term in specific because while I'm Iraqi and I, I've chosen to wear hijab, like I am white passing, right? So when people speak about their struggles as, as women of color, for example, my struggles maybe more related to hijab, but had I not chosen to wear hijab, I, I could have kind of been anonymous, which is the privilege that I think many communities don't have. But some people d- don't have that choice. So discrimination and racism comes if you think about so much of the racism and and, and violence against the black community in the United States. A lot of it is based off of image often right where a police officer may shoot too quickly Mm -hmm. because of how somebody looks and so i think i think what i'm getting at is the concept of being deeply rooted and having experiences to draw from that may align in parallel universes is really beautiful because it's a, a little bit less specific and i'm not as much of an imposter in that world but truly do have
1: experiences to share right yeah and, and I think this is, you know, we're reaching a point right now where we really are on a shift. You know, I really, really, you know, started feeling that, and I know it's not my algorithm, you know, I, it's partly my algorithm, you know, <laughs> but there is definitely something going on in the air. Uh, you know, think about the global revolutions that were happening in the last few years, just and you know, the simultaneously and there was a period in two thousand and nineteen where a number of really important countries were um in revolution, including Iraq, including you know Lebanon, including Chile, including you know uh, Algeria, Sudan. Uh, think about what happened with George Floyd, you know, and, and, and Minneapolis and Standing Rock, like there was a lot of really powerful energy happening in the world, where people are like, okay, enough is enough. We're done. We're done with this. And who were the people on the front lines? And who were the people who were, you know, demanding change were people who understand struggle on that level. They were the black people, the indigenous people, the people mm. who have been struggling against, um, you know, various oppressors for generations, you mm. know, I'm like intergenerationally um, have been carrying these burdens of systemic mm. oppression, racism, um, you know, displacement, uh, all all of these issues that I feel connect us more than they divide us, and mm-hmm. actually, when they di- when when they want to divide our communities and our you know our experiences, that actually works in their benefit, and we saw that happen, and we see it happen in Iraq with sectarianism and this idea of like divide and conquer. But what the revolution in Iraq did in October, the October Revolution, it was the antithesis of that. It was like yeah. no, actually. We are one and we're unifying because we're stronger together. And that it was like a crazy experience because that has, that has not happened in my lifetime. That narrative has not, you know, been shifted on that clearly and manifested itself in that way ever for me. So it was so powerful for me to witness and to experience, although from, you know, my phone from the buffer of my phone screen. But, um, but I feel like, you know, there's something happening. There's something happening around us in the air right now. And I feel like the pandemic is only pushing us closer to that. Mm -hmm.
0: You know, it's, it's wild. And I'm thankful for that. So my dad's in very to you, this will sound very normal, but I'm always surprised by how many people are surprised by this based on the narrative. But my dad's an Arab Sunni and my mom's a Shia Kurd, right? Oh, I
1: love that. Sushi. Yeah,
0: yeah exactly. <laughs> Sushi. Like, so, And you're just like, oh, no big deal. And, and it's, it's remarkable <laughs> based on the narratives and unfortunately some of the more semi recent events where people are like, wow what happened? Like, how did you, how did they accomplish that as though they've accomplished some great feat. Whereas honestly, most of, I would say there was probably a 60, 40 split where 60 of my Radochi friends growing up were sushi and then 40% were one sector or another. Um, so that was, I think it's a pretty common experience. Definitely it was in our parents' generation and I'm really happy to see it go back to that. Um, for reasons I don't even have to explain. I mean,
1: yeah, I mean, I think yeah. that was, the, you know, this is one of the things, like when we look back at our parents' generation and how they spoke about Iraq, it was not just Sunnis and Shias. It was also Jews and Christians mm-hmm. and, you know, various sects of Islam. And, you know, the diversity is what made the country so beautiful and, and made knowing about them and, you know, as neighbors, as classmates, as friends, um, it's it's normal. I, I wanna I wanna break down something. I write about it in my book. Uh, I have this section called um, new word o- new word order, um, and that's kind of it was the root of the idea of shifting the wo- into using the words deeply rooted instead of BIPOC or marginalized or people of color. Is that Iraq? The word Iraq is actually the root word. Uh, the the root word of Iraq is actually Uruk. And Uruk is the ancient city in the south of Iraq, which is actually the first known city to man. The first, you know, the Sumerian civilization actually dates back before the Egyptian civilization, uh, you know, ancient Egyptians and um, the, the Mayans. It goes way further back. And Uruk appeared... And I think it was six thousand BC, and when um, you look at the root word, the plural of the word Uruk, which is "Iraq," that means the multiplicity of ethnicities or multiplicity mm. of ethnicities. So you think about Iraq as a place; it actually means multiplicity of ethnicities. Huh? You know? And I find that to be so important and so beautiful because that represents our human family. You know, and so deeply rooted is actually another definition of Araq. So Araq means both multiplicity of ethnicities and deeply rooted as well. Araq.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's so beautiful and I'm so hopeful to see things trend in that direction. So, Ness, I have to ask you, what, what's a day in your life like? But then also, what's like a quarter in your life like? It, m- imagining that, you know, a piece or, or something may take a quarter for you to produce.
1: What do you mean by a quarter?
0: Like, how's it? What's a day in your life? But then in also... My, like
1: a quarter of my day? You
0: no, know, first, like a day in your life. Like, what is a day in Sundice's life? You wake up, take care of the kids. Do you make art? H- what happens then? But then also over time, how does that pan out? So that piece that you're making in that day... What do you do with it three months later? How do you decide to put it out into the world?
1: Mm, Interesting. (laughs) Oh, like quarters. I get that. I like that. Yeah. you're such a business-minded person. I'm sure it's, like, it's showing up in so many different ways. I love like
0: it. I'm like a quarter, like, you know, three months.
1: I think we have a lot to, to, uh, to learn from each other, lately.
0: Definitely. <laughs> I, I need to go spend a little bit of time in the collective group. <laughs> um,
1: okay, so basically, I have been roughing it uh, for the last few years, and I love it that way. My My kids are at home all the time. Uh, they're seven and four, and um, since the pandemic, they've been homeschooled. Actually, so we haven't, you know, this idea of taking my kids to daycare was actually something I never did. So both my kids didn't even go to daycare as they were growing up pre-pandemic. They've been, and and because Yasin and I don't have, you know, like a job in the sense of like. Go to the office and come back home nine to five type situation. Our life is um, is pretty um, unconventional in that sense. You know, our kids are home. We're home. I try to create as much as possible um, a sense of harmony and joy in the house, where create you know creativity and creation is something that is. Just something that we do naturally, what, you know. Whether it's even just you know preparing the way I prepare the food, or the way that we sit together to share a meal, or my son, my seven-year-old son, making a beat on GarageBand, or <laughs> you know the fact that one of the most uh, you know um, one of the things that takes up most of the space in our house are the kids drawing materials and easels and it just make it a part of our everyday life where it's just natural and normal to be expressing ourselves in this way you know we have a piano at home and and it's just it's beautiful I love it alhamdulillah I'm so grateful for the life that we live and and we're able to kind of adapt to the pandemic because we were already used to being home a lot and home with the kids. So, you know, apart from our privilege of traveling to see friends and family every once in a while, we haven't been able to do that, but otherwise it's been a real blessing. As for when I have time to do my own work, uh, that's where I have struggled the most. I only work when the kids go to sleep. And I've done that since my firstborn child was, you know, was born, my, my, my eldest. I, um, I got, after I gave birth to Shams, my son, I started working on my book Shams. <laughs> it was literally at the same time. It, was, it, was, it happened, I got a grant to develop, and, and to develop the illustrations and to turn it into a book, literally one month before my son was born. So I knew I had this big job upon me and a newborn. And I'm like, I'm going to have to make this work somehow. And then I found out that I was pregnant one month before I started my master's in uh, media studies (laughs) four years later. (laughs) (laughs) three years later. And so it was one of those days. like, you know what? I'm going to be breastfeeding my child while while writing my thesis. Uh, So be it. I'm going to... You know, wait till the kids go to sleep so I can focus instead of stressing out that I'm, you know, it's too loud or it's too this during the day. I'm just gonna wait till they sleep and do it, you know, quietly and on my own time. I lost a lot of sleep over the past few years. I had a mega burnout after both books came out last year. Um, But I'm finally starting to recover and and really just taking uh, joy in, in the daily things. That's beautiful, and I think that that
0: kind of flow would resonate with a lot of women. Um, It it tends to be women, maybe some men too, but definitely women. Where that time after the kids go to bed ends up really being the time to focus, and and maybe maybe you have a more uh, common nine to five or child care during the day. For me, when when my my personal workday is over, between that time and the time the kids go to sleep, I just. Kind of, uh, what's the word when you uh, submit? I just submit, you know. Like I, I, I don't try to get creative and squeeze anything in. It's, it's really just not going to happen. And it's, it's kind of that time that I get with them. But then once they go to bed, that is the most practical time to actually try to focus uh, because the fifteen minute increments here and there don't work. So I think that that definitely resonates. And I think it's really, it's really great. Like I think that I loved and was super excited to talk to you. Because I I love that you have made a career out of art, out of being an author, and you also are married to a creative. So you have this beautiful kind of creative lifestyle that is authentic and that is giving so much back to the world. Um, And frankly, in the Muslim community, this is a very broad stroke generalization, but it's maybe not as common. Um, as some other communities, I don't know, you know, like maybe the wider Canadian community or the wider American community, for example.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. I mean, when we find other people that are like us, it's it's very rare. And when we find them, we're like, oh my god, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's be friends. <laughs> and uh, we've had, you know, we we're we're blessed to have you know a very small handful of people who just get it. You know, they get it. They get this lifestyle. They understand it. It comes with. A lot of sacrifice, though, Leila. I mean, honestly, like it sounds, really, really um, nice the way I described it, but it comes with an enormous amount of sacrifice. So I talked about my burnout at the end of uh, 2020 after releasing two books. Honestly, like I'm, I am still recovering from it because I realized that I have been running since the day, you know. Since I was pregnant with my first child, I have not slowed down. I haven't stopped, and it is only now that I have, you know, my two children are healthy, home, safe. My two books are healthy, out in the world and safe. Like they're they're out, you know, like they're they're done. Only now am I starting to learn how to rest properly, how to take care of myself. No pun intended. Um, given the title of my book. And just allowing myself not to just hit the ground running as soon as the kids sleep, start working or start, you know, doing what I got to do. Been, you know, like giving, allowing myself the time and the space to pace myself a little bit more. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and,
0: and you know, I think, send us what people who aren't creatives may not understand. Creative burnout is a different type of burnout. Oh, it's spiritual.
1: It's like psychic. It's, it's, yeah, right? Yeah.
0: Because because, like even you know, I, I even recall in architecture school, there's really no end date to a project. I could design forever, it's until I'm satisfied and i'm I'm never satisfied, right? so uh, you just work and think and think and think and think, and I think that that's it's just a totally different type of burnout, so it's great to see that you're finding the balance and to your point, you rarely find couples like you, so that what that really also means is maybe less folks to learn from or less sounding boards, so you end up even creatively building your lifestyle right?
1: absolutely I mean we have had like I said we're unconventional we've had no you know there's no standard there's nothing to compare ourselves to. I mean, even our parents, although our parents were creatives and they're very creative people and they're artists, you know, they did lead more convent- much more conventional lifestyles than we did. So we we just had to kind of feel our way through. And I think we've done an okay job, Alhamdulillah. I mean, hopefully we won't, you know, our children um, won't be... Uh, completely dubbed by the time we're done. <laughs> Pardon my, my language. But uh, I think, yeah, I mean, I think we're giving them a good foundation.
0: <sighs> uh, yeah, no, definitely. I think so. Creativity is really important for me. And I, it's the one thing that I just want to make sure that my kids, I guess there are a few things, but it's one of the things I want to make sure that my kids definitely pick up. But Sundas, it has been a pleasure. As I'd mentioned, I, I can't wait to come up to Montreal at some point for work. And we will have to come and see you. And thank you just for the time. And for those who are listening and want to follow your journey, where can they learn more about you or follow you?
1: Well, uh, first of all, I want to say thank you so much, Leila. This has been really, really a pleasure. My my cousin actually told me about your podcast many months ago. And she was like, hey, you should follow. You should follow uh, Leilul. And I'm like, okay. Iraqi girls on. This is amazing. Iraqi girls doing things. <laughs> yes um, it. and now look look at us now it's beautiful um thank you for that support and i love that you know the fact that we can support each other in our in our very small community is very important instagram is always a good place to start especially given that i'm a visual artist and <laughs> <laughs> it's a visual medium and that's very accessible so my instagram is sundis Abdel Hadi. And then uh, wearethemedium.com is also a really good place to start to get to know myself, my work, and then my greater community. And um, and I often uh, put other projects that we didn't get a chance to talk about today on my website, sendusabdelhadi.com, where I have a lot more visual art, visual work that um, is up there as well.
0: Perfect. I'll, I'll make sure to link all of that in the show notes. And thank you so much again. Have a blessed rest of your Ramadan and great chatting.
1: I mean, thank you so much. And same to you, Leila. This was really lovely. Shukran. Thank you.